Episode 51 of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined as always by Courtney Nguyen. Welcome back to the Tennis World, Courtney. Thank you, Ben. It's lovely to be back. How are you finding it upon your return? Today was a bit of a cluster. For those who don't know, I was on, I took a six-day vacation away from tennis, which is probably like the first time that I've actually done that. We'll do more on that later, but yeah. Yeah, but like in years. So it was kind of weird and it took me a little while. But yeah, no, today was my kind of first day back. And, you know, between catching up and also trying to keep track of, you know, an ATP Masters and Premier event, it was kind of a lot. And also my internet was down all day. So I had to like go to Starbucks and work from there. So yeah, it's a lot living your life in split screen, so to speak. It's tough, you know, and it was not exactly I feel like I was ready to welcome tennis back into my life. But I really feel like tennis was not ready and not okay to bring me back so <laughs> we'll see how it goes the rest of the week could be bumpy and you'll see how it goes in Cincy you're gonna be right up up and close personal with it pretty soon oh I'm I think I'm good then I don't think that tennis can be an absolute jerk to me like face to face but I feel like maybe like on the phone or kind of doing the like the long distance thing like I feel like there are little cues that maybe I'm not picking up on that tennis right. is not respecting and so that's my bad and I apologize and maybe the six-day break was rude but I'm gonna have to earn it back You're going to get like a very sort of possibly sarcastic email and you're not sure how to take it. Exactly. Like a cryptic text message that I'm just going to be like, were you being passive aggressive? Were you being sarcastic? Or what is your deal? And what did I do wrong? Because I really don't feel like I did anything wrong, Tennis. Really don't think so. I think some of the results last week could have been interpreted as sarcastic results for the Tennis. (laughs) That's probably fair. (laughs) We'll get to that all right now. Yeah, so the first result we're going to talk about happened in Southern California at the Southern California Open. New name, lack of sponsor, but no more lack of a title for a while for Samantha Jane Stoser, who won just her fourth career singles title in winning Carlsbad, beating Victoria Azarenka pretty soundly in the final, uh, three and two or two and three or something like that. Courtney, what do you make of, even if you didn't see it, what do you make of the fact that Sam Stoser hoisted a trophy? Because it doesn't happen much. It doesn't happen much. And I feel like, yes, it was like maybe last week, not last week, but two weeks ago at Stanford. Weirdly, there's like, in case people don't know, that like Northern California is, is a weird hotbed of tennis writers. Like mm-hmm. almost sure. the, quite a few like kind of like major writers are all based out of Northern California. So Matt Cronin, Doug Robson, Joel Drucker, Bruce Jenkins, myself, Richard Osborne, Bill Simon, a bunch of people. A lot of people. Yeah, it's a good number of people. A few of us, I think it was me and Matt. And Doug were talking about it in Stanford after Sam had lost in the first round to Kvortseva, I want to say, um, in a really, really bad match. And we were just kind of all talking, and we've been talking about this since maybe even Wimbledon, I want to say, that it's just so weird that she has so few titles. Yeah. Because this is a player who, you know, aside from kind of having a big, powerful game and, and a game that obviously can and has won a slam and has had big results on the biggest stages, beating Serena twice at a slam, beating Justine Hennen, uh, you know, on clay at the, French, yeah. at the French, you know, she's had big results. And so to not be able to really string together five to seven wins or four to seven, I guess, in certain situations to be able to get a title, like more than three going into Stanford was or going into San Diego was weird. I and mean, what does that mean? And 
you know, all that sort of stuff. So yeah, so it was great to kind of see her bounce back. She took the late wild card into Carlsbad after crashing out of Stanford. I thought it was a great result for her. I think the biggest thing is that it's a confidence booster just because she is a confidence player. And then secondly, is just to get matches under her belt in advance of, of the US Open. She's still, I mean, in her opening match in Toronto today, she struggled to beat Julia Glushko. Yes, Glushko. I wanted to say Gurgis and then I wanted to say Gavortseva, but it's Glushko, who's a qualifier. I mean, she beat her, I think, like 7-5 or 6-4 in the third. So it's still Sam. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it almost wouldn't have surprised me to see her go and, like, beat Vika, who she hadn't beaten in eight tries for the first time in Carlsbad to win her fourth title and have that title be bookended by a loss in Stanford to Gavortseva and a loss in Toronto to <laughs> Glushko. Yeah. This is the Sam Stozer merry-go-round. Pretty much that's right. I think that it's interesting sort of just philosophical existential tennis. I don't even want to say debate, but just sort of query. Like, how much does winning titles matter in the big picture? I mean, we had, um, we're not going to rehab the thing, but we had a few weeks ago on the show, we had like a who's had a better career, Stozer, Wozniacki debate. And Wozniacki has won like 21, 22 titles, something like that at this point. Stozer had won three, now is improve that by 33% to four. <laughs> a lot of people still think of Sosa as being the better career. And I don't think we're going to talk about her that much when we get to Washington, but Magdalena Rybarakova won her fourth title as well this week. <laughs> she kept level with Sam Sosa. And there's a weird collection of players who have four titles who are not anything like each other in terms of reputation. I think Stoser has four. Malfis has four. Stakovsky has four. Rybarakova has four. I mean, like, what does it mean to win that many titles? What does it say about your career? Because it could be one of the first stats that comes up in, like, a bio about you. Or it's in, like, the first, I don't know, paragraph of your Wikipedia page. It's won four titles. It can, That stat can paint such an incomplete picture of a person's career. Yeah, I and I, I totally agree. And I think that with Stozer, you do have to take into consideration the fact that she is... The Sam Stozer we know right now is not the Sam Stozer that existed throughout her entire career. No. I mean, you know, the first half of her career, she was a double specialist. She wasn't like anything really special on the singles court. And she wasn't even being put in a situation to where she could be competing for titles. And so if you really shrink it down and you say, OK, well, she's got four titles in what is effectively in her peak form or arguably peak form what, a span of five years? Like the post... That's probably right. Yeah, yeah. I think that she first sort of became a relevant person, and this can be debated. Oh, seven. But I think she first became a relevant Wait. person. I would say, actually, I would go oh nine when she made the French semis. Yeah. That's probably... That's when I first, like, really took notice of her as a player. Sure. And that was before her first title, I believe. Right, too. yeah. So that's so, four yeah. years? You know, mm-hmm. so a little over four years in, yeah. in a four year span, four titles, one of which is a slam. And, you know, the the titles that she has won, I guess. Well, the other two are pretty well. Charleston is arguably big, but the, based on the field, it wasn't particularly big the year that she won it. So but this win is probably her biggest one after the U.S. Open just because she beat Vika. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. And Vika had been such a roadblock for her. Yeah. A surprising scoreline. I mean, Sam had played such a tough match against her in the U.S. Open quarters last year, losing in a oh, third set. Match. Right. That was a great, great match. That was match. a great match, yeah. So, and that was a cool match because it was Sam as defending champion against the number one. It was just a, it was a very cool match. I don't think people had very high expectations for, and it really exceeded them at the time. So that was a good match. But yeah, I think Sam, as a person to measure in terms of her career, is just sort of all over the place because she's unbelievably unreliable. And I'm someone who sort of believes that you have to, when you're talking about a player's legacy or in terms of Hall of Fame or whatever, you have to look at the whole thing. You have to take lows with the highs. And that's part of why, like, for example, this weekend when 
Svetlana Kuznetsov a loss twice to Lauren Davis in like two days. I will remember that when I think about <laughs> Svetlana Kuznetsova's place in tennis history. I mean, because you, ha- you can't just sugarcoat everything and only selectively look at what someone is proud of. Sam has had some definite lulls. I think it's unbelievable given how good her game is on that surface. If she's only won one clay title, that's ridiculous to me. How I think of her as one of the absolute preeminent clay court players in the game, and some of her results have borne that out, especially at the French Open. We've listed her previous scalps there before. I mean, I, she's only won one clay title. She doesn't schedule a ton of small clay tournaments, and that's part of it. But, I mean, she, I think she's definitely an underachiever on the podium side of things for sure think, and maybe everything yeah but i think that you do have to go and look back at how sam schedules i think that one of the things that always has really i've always really respected about the way that she schedules her year is that she backs her talent like she plays big tournaments yeah she doesn't go she doesn't go vulturing she doesn't go and play like yeah Rabarkova, go win the city open back to back I'm going to, you know, I'm going to play the bigger tournament with the better field out in San Diego or uh, or up in Stanford. So I don't really think that, like, she's necessarily poaching for titles. No, she's definitely not. You know, so I think that, that that you do, again, like what you were saying before about a player's career title count, whether or not as a black and white statistic, it really says anything. It's like, yeah, it says something, but it doesn't paint the whole story because you do have to look at like how they play and and what tournaments they play and when you look at like a Sharapova for example who also you know schedules very well in terms of playing big tournaments and if she doesn't win those big tournaments then yeah she could go an entire year and have a good year and still only win like two titles or one title you know or that that wouldn't probably happen to like a Redvanska right exactly or heck a Serena who Bastad like okay Bastad 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 was an outlier Serena is not often slumming it up in Bastad I'm just saying I will I will I will object to that that assertion saying that okay Bastad okay Bostad, yeah. She had to play Swedish number one, Johanna Larson, in the final. That she did. Swedish number one on her home court. Mm-hmm. And let's face it, Sam would have probably lost that match. <laughs> yeah, clearly. Speaking of Carl's results, the others end of that final. What do you make of Azarenka losing her first hardcourt match of the year? Oh, I didn't realize that. Weird, right? Quite. Although... We're in August. Although, to be fair... Okay, but that's like a... Oh, there are so many asterisks. Right, that's like 20 asterisks to that one, because like she basically pulled the ripcord on her hardcourt season in the spring after India Wells when she pulled out or whatever. So she skipped Miami and whatnot, and now this is the first tournament back. But I do think that... Especially, you know, obviously, you know, she goes and she kind of blitzes the field and then she loses set to Ivanovic in the semis, right? And then she loses an easy straights to Stozer, a player that she's absolutely dominated, eight straight matches. And then cites a lower back injury and pulls out of Toronto. Like, the curious 2013 season of Victoria Azarenka continues. It's been fascinating. Yeah, I just kind of feel like it's it hasn't really... It's almost like it got traction and then she beat Serena and Doha and, like, called it a year. Like, I mean, I'm, that's a really harsh way of, like, putting it because that's absolutely, surely not the case, but kinda. She hasn't done anything of note then in sense. I mean, she, she did make the Rome final and the French semis, but I mean, there's been nothing really memorable that she's... No memorable wins. No, it's, she's been largely irrelevant, I kind of feel like, and, and that shouldn't be i mean she's back to number two you know she's solidly when we talk about the big three she is absolutely the in the big three and no question about it that she's one of the top three players in the women's game right now but i just really feel like her 2013 has it's just been a bit of a head scratcher and you know given her kind of history that we've discussed many times on this podcast before of of being a bit of someone who is kind of the little boy who cries wolf with respect to injuries sometimes i don't really know what to make of some of the injuries that have been happening to her 
this season. And that's not to say that I doubt them, because I don't. I mean, that fall that she took at Wimbledon was nasty. But I, I don't know if she's like kind of like flipped the needle the other way so far to the extreme as to want to protect her body even more and is maybe being more cautious and, and therefore aggressive about pullouts than before. But as of right now, like, I don't really even know what to think of her going into the U.S. Open where she's a defending finalist. Yeah, I mean, I understand the desire to pull out of a tournament after you make the final of a one week before, especially if she has intentions of playing Cincinnati. She's had very poor att- uh, Cincinnati attendance in the recent past. She skipped it a bunch, mm-hmm. and the time she had showed up, I think she lost in the first round to Ivanovic, which is a tough first round, but still. I mean, she hasn't played much there at all, and I think that she or at least she should ho- hopefully be planning on a big Cincinnati then. If it's just a scheduling decision, if it's a body maintenance thing, not wanting to play three weeks in a row fine you know that's just smart but it's tough to know with her to get a solid read on her injuries are yeah because like we've said i mean she's been someone who has pulled out for reasons that have seemed sometimes ambiguous so it'll be interesting to see what the u.s open holds for her i still think she's absolutely should not be expected to lose really anyone below her i mean there's except for unless kvitova gets hot again or alina could also be given a shot but azarenka has been so solid against the field in in 2013 and before that that it's uh She's a tough, tough out for sure. And I think that part hasn't changed. That's fair. I mean, she, the upside to Azarenka to me has always been that, especially on hard courts, that she does a really good job. I mean, she does have kind of a plan B and and when she isn't at her best, she is a bit more aggressive and she is hitting the ball and she's taking control of the rallies and taking the ball very, very early. But when that side of her game isn't there, she can kind of rely a bit on defense and push, for lack of a better word, more especially against the big hitters that can pay off and can get her out of like tough jams in tough matches. So, but it, it, I just find it interesting because, you know, I have a hard time like reconciling in my head the fact that I know that she's like one of the top players. And at the same time, like I don't put her in a position like in the same category as like a David Ferrer, where I'm just kind of like, well, yeah, you're a top player, but do I genuinely think you can win a title? No. Oh no, because she, because she's won big titles. She's won big she's, titles. She's, and she has big wins. Exactly. Yeah, no, she's not at all. Like right. That. So she's not that, but it's just very, I don't know. I find myself in a weird headspace with Fika because I, okay. I can't reconcile those two things of like, you can win big titles, but I just really, and this is coming into like your best surface, but I really don't know what's going on with you. Just not a lot of data lately. Yeah, I guess that's what it is. Other than her Vine account. Yeah. Talk about, I know you were <laughs> intrigued by her Vine. Tell tell us about, about Victoria Azarenka's birthday Vine. So it was Victoria Azarenka's birthday during Carlsbad. And if you were following kind of like the global happenings of Victoria Azarenka's love life, then you are aware of the fact that Redfoo, who was a judge on X Factor Down Under, down in Australia, like broke down, like kind of teared up talking about basically about how much he missed her, I suppose, on the show. And so, yeah, so then he flew over and he was like there for her birthday in Carlsbad. And that night she posted a vine of like roses on her hotel floor. And they were also not roses, but rose petals like shaped in a heart on the bed and a cake that had her likeness sitting on it. (laughs) And there was a part of me that was like, and at the end, there's a shot of her like standing with balloons that say like another fabulous year or something. And there was a part of me that was kind of really relieved to see that shot of her at the end holding the balloons because it kind of felt like a proof of life. (laughs) Because I'm not going to lie, like initially when you fire it up, like look it up, just go onto her Twitter. It's there. It kind of looked like an outtake from Hannibal. Like, it just looked like bad things were going to happen. But, I mean, it's the thought that counts. Very sweet. But I kind of wish I could unsee it. 
if this was a video podcast, people would have seen me face palming through most of that description. <laughs> I mean, it's just it, it's 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 nice that they're that they're so happy together, and you know, opposites attract or. I don't know what exactly they are together, but it's it's something. And yeah, good for. I hope those kids make it. Well, sorry, one of them's like forty. I shouldn't say he's a kid. Hope those two human beings make it. Hope they make it, and their cake likenesses make it as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, seriously, people like look it up. It's the cake. The cake person was. It's like a doll made out of icing sitting on a cake. I appreciate that. Like the cake person is what like captured your attention, whereas for me, like yeah. the bloody trail of red rose petals was really freaky <laughs> yeah well it just shows my love for cake basically. and probably my general dark space in my head that's about right so segue those rose petals were left on the floor of victoria azarenka's hotel room in carlsbad courtney i know you've been to carlsbad several times as a tournament maybe not with hope with any flower petals on your bedroom floor there but i just wanted to get your thoughts on that tournament your experiences there because there is some speculation and some talk that this may have been the last year of that tournament or at least one of the last ones it's without a title sponsor now and all unconfirmed as of this point but there's speculation that it might be yet another tournament departing california yeah it's kind of funny because honestly up until maybe two weeks ago i genuinely thought the tournament had already been gone yeah the decision had already been made but i have since been corrected that no final decision has been made with respect to the tournament so the history of the carlsbad tournament is quite a lengthy one i mean for the longest time it was the Acura Classic. It was like Lindsay Davenport was a stalwart there. Steffi Graf, like everybody played there. And it was a great tournament. Sharapova was Yeah. It was a great tournament, really well supported by the local community in Carlsbad and San Diego. Sellouts. It took place at La Costa Resort, which is a great resort. And then... So what happened was LA and San Diego used to exist together for quite a while. And then San Diego went away in 2007. And then LA moved in 2009 to replace San Diego, where it started back up in 2010. So it's confusing sort of waltz that's been happening in California tennis, which has really become quite the uh, land of upheaval for you guys. A bit, yeah. I mean, because I went to the LA championships or whatever they were called when they were at the Home Depot Center from whatever, 07 to 09. And then after that, went to Carlsbad. But I'd never been to the Acura Classic as it existed before, so I don't really have any basis of comparison but used to watch on tv it looked fine yeah yeah it looked good on tv but i think that with the once the tournament left and came back i think it had a really i think it had a problem rebranding the fact that it wasn't called the acura classic anymore really hurt it ticket sales were pretty brutal for whatever reason even though it was just like a two three year break like once it came back with the same fan base like didn't come back and maybe a lot of that has to do with the i don't know that maybe Lindsay really did drive it the player field wasn't there i mean i don't think sharapova ever came back to it in its new incarnation that I can remember. Correct. Obviously, I don't think the Williamses were ever there. Correct. I'm pretty sure of that. I, I, I mean, I don't think that a lot of players who were keeping it afloat before had been. And I think part of that is due to, due to the roadmap stuff. I think once you establish something like Canada and Cincinnati as being really kind of mandatory, it makes it harder for these other tournaments to attract the kind of fields they used to. Well, and I think a lot of it also has to do like agency representation. So you have mm-hmm. you have three tournaments right around the same time owned by three different agencies. So you have like Stanford, that's IMG owned and operated. Mm-hmm. IMG represents Sharapova, which is like the big name. Uh, so let's just say Sharapova. Then you had the City Open, which is owned and operated by Lagardere, yep. which has Wozniacki, Azarenka. Not to say they played there, but these are the players that are they have kind of access to that if they wanted to, they could probably... Sloan, who did play Sloan. there. Sloan. Yeah. So you had some players there. And then you had 
Octagon, which owned and operated effectively the Southern California Open. Right now, Octagon doesn't really have a, a huge number of top marquee players. And like, that's why one thing that you saw this year in Carlsbad was this whole Martina Hingis thing. Because yeah. she is Octagon. She partnered up She partnered up with Daniela Hantakova to play doubles in her comeback tournament in Carlsbad. You know, it's hard not to be cynical about that decision when you look at it from the outside. They've lost Laura Robson, who's now with IMG. Like, Octagon just doesn't really have a lot of like, high profile players that will play there so it's a bit tougher to kind of field a field when you know that you don't have a top five player that you can be like okay like please go play this tournament and save it what did you make of the tournament when you were there what was it like being on the ground to that tournament you went a few times yeah yeah i mean it's a bit built up it feels like a temporary tournament it takes place at la costa resort which is a very nice resort but the facilities just aren't really big enough to support a premier level tournament nowadays the stadium court is quite small and a lot of the seating's kind of built up and the outer courts for a while i think the first year that i went there they put up tarps so you couldn't even see into the practice courts which was like so stupid yeah it just feels very quaint and small which is nice but because they weren't delivering the field you really weren't getting anything out of having kind of a quaint small tournament obviously if they do go away it's easy to second guess this but i never really understood why they changed the name from san diego to carlsbad I mean, San Diego makes it sound like more of a consequential city, even if it is, you know, several dozen miles outside of San Diego or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure that that's like a stipulation or some sort of a provision within the contract with the city yeah. to house the, house the event. Like, it's very similar to kind of why we call it Indian Wells and not Palm Springs. Right, which they used to call Palm Springs. Which they used to call Palm Springs. And then once, like, everybody kept calling it Indian Wells and as the event grew bigger, then it was like Indian Wells is like a thing. Like, people know where Indian Wells is and, like, no one should know where Indian Wells is. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it, it always kind of, I mean, admittedly felt small and janky and, like, it never... It was kind of a weird tournament too. Like it, like I think the first two years that I applied for credentials there, I was denied. Which hmm. okay, that's totally fine. Like I'm not like being an asshole about being like, how dare you like not credential me? But then I'll say it. How dare they not credential you? <laughs> no, but like they, it was just kind of an odd thing because like the press room was huge. There wasn't a space issue. Why wouldn't you want? kind of broader coverage of your event. This is back when you were with 40 Deuce, right? This was yeah. This would have been both when I was with 40 Deuce right before yeah, because I got hired right before Cincy that year. So it would have been nice. Carlsbad. So both those years and it was just kind of weird. Like I was like, oh, okay, I guess. Like that's kind of odd though, because like most other tournaments that are relatively smaller have like lower profiles. Like they will just swing open the doors and let anybody in yeah. just in hopes of getting any publicity. So I always thought that was a bit weird. But yeah, I mean, unfortunately, at least in my experience for the, the couple years that I went and I wasn't there this year, it just felt like the tournament was an international level tournament. It just never felt like a big deal. There's talk about it moving. There's talk that possibly their premier level status could get transferred to Washington, which is, uh, we can talk more about Washington later, but could be the end of that. And it's the end of a lot of tournaments in California. Los Angeles, both men's and women's are gone. San Diego would be gone. San Jose is gone. Stanford is hanging on, seems to be doing okay. And then obviously the one that's sort of swallowing all of them whole is uh, Indian Wells, which is growing into this massive thing. Have you, did you see the sidebar? Did you see the photo of the Indian Wells construction? I of did. Looks good, right? It's just bragging. It's just bragging at this point. It's just showing off. It's just, I mean, and in that we way, get it, like, we get it. I kind of love it. Like, yeah. I, I totally respect and love the swag that Indian Wells has. It's earned. It's totally earned. And it's like, you know, we're going to do it. We're going to do it right. We have the cash. We want it to be the fifth best tournament in the world. And let's be real, maybe like even higher than fifth. Yeah. Like, do it. That's awesome. Like, throw that money into tennis. Free market. Exactly. 
So my home tournament also happened this week, about a mile and a half from where I live. The City Open and its second year's title sponsor, formerly known as the Leg Mason, happened with both men and women. And the woman who won, as previously mentioned, was Magdalena Rabarakova, and the guy was Juan Martin Del Potro. We got a question about Juan Martin Del Potro from Brody, and Brody asked us, does Del Potro have a legitimate chance of being number one in a couple years post Big four. And I'm not sure exactly what post means. Yeah. I think well I guess once not all four are there anymore, that's fair. And seeing him this week and over the last couple months, I would absolutely say yes. I mean Del Potro was very impressive. Oh, absolutely. I mean, my issue with the question is what you highlighted, which is like, what is this post Big Four world, and when is that supposed to happen? Because like, if just Federer leaves, is that a post Big Four world? Right, or even Rafa, because you're still gonna have to deal with Novak and Andy, and and he's right. not that much younger than those no. guys. What is it? Two years, I think, maybe. Yeah, he's twenty four. Mm-hmm. The others are twenty six. Right. Yeah. So it's just two years. I think that the thing with Delpo is that ever since whatever two thousand nine, we know he has the talent. Yeah. That's not a question. He shows it off every once in a while. Here's the thing about being number one. You can't be soft. And Delpo's no. kind of soft. Explain. I love him to death. I mean, I really love watching him play tennis. And just he's a nice guy and, and he's fun in interviews and things like that. But he kind of shows up and sometimes and sometimes he doesn't. And there are moments where you feel like he kind of concedes matches. Like, oh, it's just not my day kind of thing. And Yeah, like in Miami this year. He made, the, he made the finals of Indian Wells and then lost first round in Miami. Yep. And that shouldn't happen. It shouldn't. I mean, he had personal problems that were probably distracting him at the time, and he flew immediately back to Argentina to deal with them. But but even outside of that, like, it, you know, I, I need more data from Delpo because I think that in the back of my head, there are still concerns about injury issues, wrists, you know, things like that, and just the, his style of tennis. Can he keep doing it over the course of a two-week slam or earn the points on a week-in and week-out basis at 500s? And, you know... Even within a match, I mean, it takes so much consistency to be able to prevail in a best-of-five over a guy like Djokovic or Murray right now. I mean, he still hasn't won a Masters. No, he still hasn't. He's only made two Masters finals, I believe, right. in so, his life, and only one slam final, and he hadn't made a slam semi until Wimbledon since he won the U.S. Open in 2009. So things are definitely trending up for him. I think if he keeps up his Washington form and his Wimbledon form, which is similar, he should absolutely be on the very short list of people to win the U.S. Open. I totally think he has a better chance than Federer, for Mm -hmm. sure. I think he has a better chance. Nadal, probably. I'll be interested to see what Nadal does in Canada this week because we haven't seen Nadal. On a surface, not Clay do that well this year except for that one time. So just not a lot of data on Nadal or what Nadal is going to be willing to expend over this uh, part of the season. So yeah, I think that he absolutely can do it. And Isner got asked and said the same thing. He said he'd put Del Potro maybe the slimmest hair is what he said behind Djokovic and Murray to win the US Open. And I totally agree with that. I think for short run, he can absolutely add to his haul. Yeah, I mean, no, I, I would put him, he's my dark horse at every single slam but mm-hmm. in terms of do i think he can ever be number one i i have my doubts because i don't think that he can bring it on a weekly basis to accumulate enough points but can does he have more than one major in him absolutely we'll see what the landscape looks like in four years i mean who knows it yeah. could go a lot of it could go a lot of different ways if Djokovic and murray both fall off or just don't become quite as dominant there's going to keep being four slams a year there's going to keep being these opportunities for him to do well for other guys to do well i mean the standard of what it takes to be number one, what it takes to win a slam, I think will go down. I mean, it kind of has to at a certain point. It's not going to be as tough as it is now in mean, four years to win a slam, probably fair to say. So I think that could, depending on how healthy he can stay, could all work well for him. But then again, it's sort of the whole concept of you know Del Petra, <laughs> that combination of them. I don't think these, these two players, these two 
talents aren't necessarily built to, you know, be slow and steady winning the race. I think they're kind of going to have to burn bright in various flashes throughout their careers. I totally agree. They're not built for like 10 months of dominance. Yeah. This is not going to happen. Not so much. One of the other stories that happened in Washington, not really a story, but one of the other exciting names to see back doing well this week in Washington was Andre Pekovic, who made her second WTA final of the summer after previously doing it in Nuremberg, making the finals, beating Alize Cornet in a semifinal that started at 12.35 a.m., which was crazy. Went a little after two, I think, before she won it. I didn't realize that match went that, started that late. Yeah, that was that was late because it was second on after, on the, in the night session, there was a long grand delay during the first match. Mm. So late start for Pekko, and she was a little bit, I think, mentally fatigued more than anything by the final. She lost to her Barakova, but she's back in the top 50. She's doing well, and it was a lot of fun having her around. She sort of made the whole... The women's field was not super stellar, especially when Sloan lost first round. She was the big draw there in terms of Q rating on the WTA Tour, honestly. Sloan was, but then Pekovic hung around, and Pekovic was a lot of fun, and she had some fun things to say, including one time, Courtney, when you, through a text message to my phone, interjected yourself into her press conference. This is mortifying. So let's listen to that and some other various Pekko highlights. I think it was a combined players party because um, we got the invitation not from the ATP but from the WTA and I, I actually I prefer it when oh Courtney wrote you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I will call her. Um, have you been in touch with Victor or Martin since the doping allegations yeah. came out? I mean, is, I mean what's well, I just know the Victor story, and Marin I haven't talked to at all. I just know the Victor story, and I really don't think it's right. I'm, I'm, because I know it from Victor, and I know how he is, and I know that he um, falls. How do you say it? Faint. He faints exactly. He faints every time when they take blood. So he was just playing a match, and he wasn't feeling well, and he gave the blood sample the next day, and he gave his urine, and both were negative. So that's. To me, that's ridiculous. And uh, about Marin, I really don't know what happened there, so I cannot comment on that. Do you think that something needs to be done in the system? It's not quite working well, or yeah. Well, I think they just. I think it's just. Um, I think the rules are. I think it's good that the rules are strict because obviously we all want to fight doping, and it's. And I think tennis was always a clean sport so far, and they were so. Uh, just very rare cases uh, in, of doping in, in tennis and that was always really nice about it and I'm also one that says doping doesn't really help you in tennis because you can be the fittest guy in the world you can um, lift I don't know 200 kilos in weightlifting that doesn't make you a better tennis player that doesn't give you the um, the overlook of the court it doesn't give you the feeling it doesn't give you the placement so um, for me I'm the best example I'm not the very the fastest player when I run against I think most of the girls I would lose in sprinting but um, I'm I see the ball quite early and then it seems as if I'm very fast on court but I'm really not I'm, I'm probably the slow one of the slowest so um, so and that was always very nice and I think it's good that the rules are strict but in cases like Victor you have to be able to look past the rules and you have to be able to to make decisions that um, that are maybe uh, yeah that are personally indicated on this on this person and as I know Victor and everybody who knows him very well and we're close friends I know him since we're 10 I think and I know that every time he gets injections he was fainting and he was sh shivering before when he had to have injections so 
um, that's a that's a kind of thing that's that's not fair then in the end. Favorite thing in DC so far? Favorite thing all the White House, but you know I will tell you first story. So I arrive on on Wednesday. I went I went for a run and I run through a park and all of a sudden there is this big white house in front of me. I'm like. Oh my God! It's the White House, and I was like, Woo. so I told my sister, "That's there, the White House. You have to go left and left." And uh, so she goes there. She comes back and she's like, "I don't think that's the White House." <laughs> I'm like, "So what is it then?" It's the Capitol. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so the Capitol slash the White House is one of my favorite things. I just don't know which one is which, but yeah. <laughs> Third set, I was lucky that I got the break in the beginning because afterwards she was really serving great. Um, and um, I told her at the net, good serving, Karlovich. <laughs> because, <laughs> because she was really serving amazingly on all the spots, so uh, I couldn't even guess. And uh, I was I was really lucky that I that I got the break in the in the first game, I think, and then I was I was able to hold my serve from there. That's the nice thing about the injuries actually that I appreciate it much more because before when I uh, I remember when I was uh, 2011 when I was in the US and I played um, great tournaments I played semis in Carlsbad quarters in Toronto and then uh, semis in, in Cincinnati, quarters in US Open, and I was never really satisfied. I was just um, going, I was just, yeah, sort of in this in this day in, day out uh, rituals. I didn't even get the time or take the time to be happy about and satisfied about what I've achieved. And so now um, I just, I'm just so happy to be back on court and so grateful for what I'm what I'm able to do and um, that I'm able to do what I love and that I'm out there again on court because a year ago, I remember I was in in rehab and um, and lifting weights with one leg for the whole day. So, <laughs> so I'm I'm really just so grateful for everything that's been giving to me, and I think I just take it as a second chance and try to make the best out of it now. Can you talk a little bit more about this set with your coach? <laughs> I I mean, <laughs> we always have this kind of. For example, my mother would have killed me. Before Marseille, I mean, I was playing awful, and I, my coach told me like, okay, listen, if you win Marseille and Nuremberg, we're gonna get a tattoo, and I was like, yeah, right. And then I was in the final of Nuremberg, and I was like, oh my god, if I win, I, I don't want to get a tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> and so now it was kind of, but it has to happen naturally, and it was kind of the same thing. We were in the car, and the girl was passing us, and she had like not even blonde hair but white hair you know yeah. the like white blonde hair and I was like what do you think would that look good on me and my sister was like no <laughs> and my coach was like oh if you win we're gonna try and I was like okay because I mean I didn't even win one point I was far from from anything near the title so on once I was in the final I totally forgot about it and yesterday he told me like do you remember what we what bet we had <laughs> so uh, I I really I never went I never changed my hair color so I I didn't want to try it really to be honest it would have been awful I think well maybe I would have been <laughs> do you think maybe you should start betting euros with your coach? I th I think more? I should go for something that's not hurting me so much. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
exactly. Maybe I should I should bet for nice things like uh, okay, if I win, I'm gonna go to McDonald's and eat I don't know some ice cream and not like I'm going blonde and uh, bald or <laughs> green haired and I'm gonna change my eye color. I don't know. <laughs> So I really have to be careful what I'm what I'm betting. Yeah. <laughs> we talked to Pekka on the show before, Courtney. We talked about Pekka some, but what is it like having Pekovic being back as a vaguely relevant person at the upper levels of the tour? I always feel like it's difficult to talk about the value that Pekovic brings to the table on the WTA because I feel like I am simultaneously insulting the rest of the field in what I say, but. The fact of the matter is, like, there are very few players on either the men's or women's side who will listen to your question, give it actual, genuine thought, and mm-hmm. articulate a really interesting answer that kind of shows that they've thought about it before and, and at the same time can be good humored. And regardless of the question that you ask, even if it's an uncomfortable one, they're they're willing to answer it. And Pekovic really, like, checks all those boxes. Oh, yeah. And so when she goes deep in tournaments as a writer it's, it's kind of exciting because you know that like you can always ask her about something like even if you don't want to ask her about the match that she just played and you want to ask her like hey what are your thoughts on this random issue in tennis yeah. she'll have them and she will articulate them really in an interesting way and she won't be pissed she won't be like guys guys like now is not the time to talk about this like i'm just really focused on my next match like all that kind of bull durham there's no one match at a time from Peck. No, she's... There's no, like, falling into cliche. Exactly. None she's of that. happy to talk about it. And so in terms of being able to, I don't know, like, just talk about the sport and, and kind of engage with somebody and be able to write something that you're you're interested in because you, you got a quote that was really interesting. So that's the value that she adds aside from her tennis and her results. And, and that's why I think there is a part of me that kind of always hopes that she does well at tournaments because I want to be able to talk to her, you know, more than once to be able to, like, you know, kind of pick her brain a little bit as to what she thinks about certain things so i'm sure that's probably how it went down in dc oh absolutely i mean she was great she did as many like it's a lot of people had that same thing so like ap guy who's there the normal ap guy howard fendrich and me and whoever else was sort of doing long-term stories i mean she would do like a lot of one-on-ones after and was game for it so any like oddball like i was thinking about writing this story about this thing blah 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 what do you think and she'd be like oh that's interesting blah, 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 blah. and uh she was just awesome that was a terrible impression of her i was gonna say your but... andy murray is way better than your andrea pekovich <laughs> i've just completely cutting that <laughs> uh, but yeah no she she was so game to talk to me and she's just she's very just chill and normal and had a good time in Washington it seemed like with the sort of cultureness of it she went to a museum during the tournament she was like I wanted to clear my head so I went to the portrait gallery it's like who does this what player mid-tournament goes to the National Portrait Gallery. Like it, it, she's she's special. And she's I mean it's just nice to have somebody normal because it is it does get frustrating when you interview a lot of like, you know, the top 20 players when you're trying to get kind of quotes for broader stories and more long-term stories and they don't want to talk about it. Like they just want to be like, you know, I'm just focused about this tournament and it's totally understandable. Yeah. Like I don't begrudge them that response. So, but when somebody is like willing to be like, yeah, let's talk, let's just shoot the shit effectively, which is yeah. sometimes how it feels with, with Petco. It's super helpful. It's very enlightening, you know, cause she speaks so honestly. So it gives you, I think a lot of times for myself, like better insight into the world of tennis and kind of the psyche of, of professional tennis players and things like that. So, so if you're interested in hearing more Petco, you can go back and listen to episode 30 of our show where she was one of our first guests we had on. And even if you heard it before, listen again. She's pretty swell. Andrea Pekovic played on the main stadium three times during the City Open, which represented half of the time that women 
played on the stadium during the entire event. Only six women's matches were scheduled on the main stadium during the whole time, part of a deal that the WTA agreed to when it agreed to merge with the men's more established men's event in Washington. The women were kept almost exclusively to the outer courts, which included Sloane Stevens in her first match, despite being the second highest ranked American man or woman. She was out on an outer court. Anjali Kerber, top 10 player, was put on the outer courts twice. Last year, Pavlyuchenkova, who was a top, the highest seed, in Washington at that point, and with a weakened men's field, pa- Pavlyuchenko was only put on there once, and that wasn't until the final. They had the semifinals out on the outer courts. They had the doubles final on an outer court. Just a lot of relegation for the women in Washington, and I wrote an article about it, Courtney, which I know you've uh, read. What do you make of this whole concept of this not combined event as Donald Dell likes to call it. Yeah, I mean, I thought that your article was super interesting because I thought that Donald Dell's quotes were quite enlightening. So in other words, it's, I think that for myself in particular, obviously, like I get probably a little bit more inclined to kind of have my hackles raised when I see like the women are getting shafted in some way or or another at any tournament. And so to kind of hear him say, look, we're completely transparent. The WTA has agreed to this. This is not a combined event. It's not a joint event. These are two tournaments at different levels. The ATP tournament is a 500 level ATP tournament. The WTA tournament is an an international level tournament. So Mm -hmm. within the scheme of their own tours, they're not the same level, arguably. And I will add to that for it's weirdly only the men are part of the U.S. Open Series officially. Women are not. Is that right? That's weird, right? I was so city open points don't go towards the U.S. Open Series. That's correct. That is interesting. You would think that that would be information that we would be. Kind of, I just assume that if it's on North American soil, it's a U.S. Open yeah, Series. Yeah, one would tournament. one would think, but the same thing happened uh, when back when they used to have that Dallas tournament for a couple of years uh, during yeah. the same stretch. That was also not a U.S. Open Series tournament. So it's sort of the same thing. These internationals don't get picked up for that, even though like the 250 like Atlanta and then previously Los Angeles both were considered U.S. Open Series even though they're same basic tier of the tour. Gotcha. But and the other thing that makes it weird about them not being totally combined is that they have they have the same name. They're both a city open. See and that's where the kind of ambiguities kind of come up and you know the fact that oh we're not a combined tournament or a joint event but the tournament's played concurrently on the same site under the same moniker. You're tweeting about the tournament from the exact same Twitter account like all these sorts of things like you know it's kind of there's an argument to be made that you do treat it as a joint tournament and actually get the benefits of that. Yeah, they have the same tournament director. Right. Same guy. Jeff Newman does both. I mean, they've done, yeah, they really are. I think splitting them. And the other thing that made that interesting, and I think I pointed this out in the article, is that none of the other tournaments do this. There are several other tournaments that are combined with uneven levels of tournament where one is higher than the other. The two that follow the same pattern as this, where the men's are 500 and women are international, it's Memphis and Acapulco. And both of them give pretty much equal time to the women on uh, stadium court. Maybe sometimes it's like 60-40 or something, but, but it's nothing. Yeah. But it's nothing like the 80-20 that happened in, in Washington. And the other tournaments where the women are bigger definitely never short shift the men. In Eastbourne, the men get pretty much equal main court time. Same with Beijing, even though it's a much bigger women's tournament than men's. Same with uh, Sydney and Brisbane are both larger designations for the women. Both of them get equal. In fact, even I think at those tournaments, at least at Sydney, I know the men's final is like a day later, which gives it sort of that grand slam Mm -hmm. feeling of being like the ultimate moment of the tournament. So yeah, I think that it it was really an interesting bargain that the WTA agreed to here because they did sign off on it. I talked to them about it last year. This is actually a story that was originally planned for last year, but it happened during the Olympics. And so it figured it would get pretty buried. So 
Yeah, no, I, I, that, and that's really the aspect of the story that I found to be really interesting. It's just that, you know, how much should we complain if the WTA is like, yeah, that's fine. You know, I mean, if, if they're happy to have their product completely degraded and set to cast aside and treated like a just sideshow. Yeah, sideshow. Okay. Like, if you want to take the paycheck, and I don't think Magdalena Rabarkova is complaining, you know, where it would have been awkward is if Sloan won. Yeah. That's when it would have been weird. And that's when you'd kind of be like, wait, like the number two American who's ranked higher than the men's equivalent, who's playing in the dude side, is, I don't know, being treated this way and playing out on grandstand. And obviously, maybe if she was in the tournament, they'd put her on center more. I don't know. But yeah, it would have been interesting to see what kind of court assignment she would have gotten had she stayed in the draw. Yeah. Because I know that she she elected to play on grandstand because of the options they gave her, and I think this made it into the final version of the story, the options yes. they gave her were either playing first up on stadium at like 2 p.m. during the workday when no one's there or playing last on and Washington has determined the skew is pretty late because it, it's traditionally very hot here in August even though it really wasn't this year it was very pleasant <laughs> so she would have gone on to like 10 30 at night which players don't like doing or she could have played at 2 p.m. and so the women's matches that were on the stadium during the tournament were all either first or last right during this tournament so no prime time for them and and a lot of the women a lot of the women initially were like yeah we understand it's you know no big deal but it's just, I don't know. For the, the, the fans were talking about it a lot, especially when Sloan was on the outer court and James Blake was on the inside. Yeah, I mean, I just I think that I don't necessarily blame the tournament for running it however they're running it. It's mm-hmm. their freaking tournament. Like, they can run it however they want to run it. I think, to me, the blame really lies with WTA in terms of even agreeing to this. Like, you know, and and yes, I get it. It's prize money. It's another tournament. Like, your players aren't going to... Your players are probably going to complain more about not having a tournament than having a tournament where they can earn, right. you know, $90,000 or whatever. Oh, actually, only 40000 for the winner. 40000 uh, Just compared to 290000 for the men. There you go. And so... Big drop. And so that's the thing is, like, I don't have a problem with, like, obviously international level events happen but when mm-hmm. you stick them next to a 500 atp event and you agree and really give like the power to the tournament to treat your event like a second class citizen what ex- i mean how, where exactly is the benefit here other than ha- obviously having a tournament just the optics are rough and i think that the men were very insistent on not or apparently resisted and not want the combined event they enjoyed having dc to themselves the way that you can tell the women probably enjoy having charleston to themselves i mean that's fine i don't think every tournament needs to be combined i think that's generally an okay topic and the men the men were told by by dell and by the other locker air officials who were combining the event that yeah they would keep getting everything they had. I mean, John Isner was asked by me what had, he thought had changed most about the tournament since he first started playing it in 07. And he, this was one of my original leads for the story that got thrown out. And he was like, oh, you know, the city, the the um, title sponsor changed. That was a bit of a change. And, and like mentioned something else, but then like the new something or other never mentioned that women had showed up midway through. Because to him, it didn't make a difference. He still played every match in the stadium. He still got practice courts when he wanted. And the men generally, women stayed out of their way. The men do have some legitimate complaints sometimes when it comes to sharing a tournament with women because women much more often don't like to practice with each other. That's a big pet peeve of the men. The women practice with their coaches or their hitting partners and not with each other, whereas the men take up half as much practice court space because they practice with other guys who are also in the tournament. So, I mean, I understand the reasons why the guys might not want them there and why women also might want the extra room. But just, yeah, the optics of it were strange. When you had Madison Keys, this like really next big thing American playing on the fourth biggest court of the tournament at some point it's just odd right that's washington and there is talk that it might change in the future but then again it might not 
That was a great conclusion there. <laughs> That's just tennis, though. Things could happen, or things might not. Speaking of things that might not happen, um, it's, uh, for all we know, the Americans might not ever have another guy in the top 20. <laughs> Today, we're recording this on Tuesday evening. The American men, officially with John Isner's loss in the first round of Montreal to Vashik Pospisil, the American men are out of the top 20 of the ATP rankings for the first time since the ATP rankings began on August 23rd, 1973. Courtney, what does this milestone mean? Hmm. What does it mean? I mean, I think that if anything, it just gives you a concrete statistic to really point to, to illustrate to the extent that it needed to be illustrated that there's very little depth in American men's tennis right now. Oh, yeah. Because it's not really, you know, when we when we talk about it, I mean, it, it was only a few years ago that we were freaking out about an American dropping out of the top 10. 2010. It wasn't, it didn't, that wasn't really that long ago. And a lot of that was obviously because of Andy Roddick and, and his ability to stay within top 10. And then, and Marty Fish as well, towards later half or yeah. later part of that. But now, just like two years on, we don't even have everybody in the top 20. And so, you know, for a long time, like when you look back at the statistics, looking at, you know, how many American men were in like the top 10 or top 20 over the course of the last few years, there weren't a lot. Like, you know, it's not like we can point to like a trend if you were like to graph it and be like, oh, you know, there used to be eight men in the top 20 and, and you know, within the last like 10, 15 years. And now there's only like one. It's like, no, there's always been a sparse number. Um, recently. I mean, recently, recently, because back in the yes, 70s and 80s, course. there were times where there were eight in the yes, top 20. Yes, that did but, happen. But yeah. recently, what talking about this transitional, because the thing about Roddick is that he was really kind of the, the top American during a time of like pure globalization of the sport. So as other smaller, as the, like the traditional tennis powerhouses began to kind of seed way to kind of the smaller countries who just kind of had these like ridiculous talents coming out of them. You know, Roddick was still kind of there in the midst of it. So there was in a lot of in a big way, kind of an illusion that, you know, we had Roddick in there in the top 10. And, you know, and so American tennis was still good and healthy and strong. And, you know, he retires less than a year later, there's nobody in the top 20 it's not exactly like i mean i'm not saying like it's a co it's like cause and effect but it's no coincidence right no I, I i mean i would agree with that it's just it's roddick i think definitely in some ways was taken for granted on how alone he was on that because there really wasn't another time when there was just one guy carrying it i mean McEnroe and connors were together agassi and sampras were together and even they had michael chang and Jim Courier, who are consistently in the top 10. There are other guys we don't remember as much as being top 10 players who were for a while, like your Brad Gilberts, your Tim Mayotts. I mean, all these other people kept it afloat, and it's really just been sparse. And even not having anybody in the top 20, right now we only have two in the top 75. Oof. I mean, it's after, and that's a lot of it due to Marty Fish slipping and not having played very much recently, and Brian Baker being injured. But, I mean, you go, uh, right now, this week, it's Isner at 20, Quarry at 26, and then Fish at 78 is the drop. So that that's rough. And there's a lot of guys in between the top, like, 100 and top 130. There's, like, eight guys in that stretch. So, I mean, there's people coming who are going to get in the top 100 more likely than not. But, uh, but the problem is, is that yeah. we're now, I mean... A couple years ago, we were like all bitching and moaning about top 10. Yeah. Now we're like, but there's going to be people in the top 100. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's an amazing 
and very drastic shift within kind of American men's tennis in terms of how we think about it. And again, like to me, not having somebody in the top 20 is not as illustrative as the idea of like only having two in the top 75. Yeah. Like, because this is, again, this is an issue of depth. I mean, Roddick was always like that guy at the forefront who was like in the top 10 and whatever, but there was a big drop off after him. I mean, a significant, not like as big as now, but like, you know, the next person would be ranked in like the low teens or like mid 20s or something like that. And so we kind of masked this problem of like there's no one actually supporting Andy that's there like pick up if he slacks off or whatever so it's it's tough but it's not surprising no I think we've all been waiting for this day to happen I mean it's been so close it's been close to happening several times before this I mean when it first got really in the cards for happening is when Isner lost at Indian Wells and he fell out of the top 20 and Quarry held on at number 20 so I mean like really if you have somebody in the top 20 but they're number 20 I mean, what are you bragging about there? Nothing really. And that's really how it's been for the rest of the season. Yes, Isner Aquari never got above 18 during that stretch. They never got safely back in there. They were always sort of hanging on by their fingernails. There were a bunch of times over the course of the year where if somebody had won one more match, like if, if Kevin Anderson had won Atlanta, it would have happened. Yeah. If Kevin Anderson had won Bogota, it would have happened. There are a bunch of times when there were just a couple cards falling one way or the other where it could have happened. Yeah, so I think Quarry's had a bad year. I think Isner's had an okay year. Isner, I mean, it's kind of tough this comes for Isner as a sort of bad news wave because he's had a pretty good few weeks mm-hmm. making the Washington final and doing well in Atlanta and making semis of Newport, which is okay because Newport's kind of like a challenger. But the problem is that he's basically field. defending points. He's not gaining points. Right. So he, he no, can't... exactly. He only gets points one time a year. Yeah. So. And, and, and and I will say this, and this is similar, this is the same argument that I made back during Wimbledon about kind of the whole no American man has made it to the second round or whatever it was, third round or whatever it was in over 100 years, is that there's a lot of kind of just shitty luck that goes into this. I think that with Isner kind of having an injury adult year and not, I mean, he's basically, he was basically ruled out of effectively two slams this year in terms of not playing the Aussie and then having to pull out of what should have been a for sure run to the fourth round at least oh, yeah. at Wimbledon. Sem- could have been semis. Could have been semis, easily. easily. And, that would and have- if, he had won, if he had won Washington, which he won the first set of that final against South Potro, if he'd won Washington, he'd be up to number 14. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of it's a bit of bad luck and, you know, and and things like that. And and so that's tough. And, you know, obviously Fish with his illness woes for the last year, that kind of takes somebody who really should be able to stay top 20, in my opinion, if he's playing well and is healthy. But uh, obviously that's not the case. Query is query. He's Query's had a bad year. Yeah, it's not. Query's had a really big missed opportunity year, I think. It's tough because it's tough for me to criticize Isner just because it's not Isner's fault there's no one better than him right now. Isner and Query, to a lesser extent, are not guys who should be built to be carrying a country. There should be some <laughs> different alpha male in this picture. It just doesn't exist. Whether that's like Donald Young, if you want to credit, no. honestly, if you want to criticize Donald Young for never living up to his potential, I think he deserves some blame for this. Why not? He was a junior number one. Sure. Harrison. Yeah. Harrison. Harrison's young still, though. I mean, Harrison's had a bad, bad 12 months. He was top 50 this time last year. But, I mean, yeah, he's had a rough, rough time of it. Yeah, it's just, it's it's more you get angry at people who don't exist. I think more people who do exist as being underachievers just because... That's fair. Unless you want to go after Donald Young, which I think I think he is a likely, almost the fairest person to blame this on, even though it's, that's not entirely fair. I think that it's just about not enough talent playing the sport compared to what the rest of the world is putting out compared to our population. Yeah. And, and I, but I also don't, I think this is sort of, if, for example, let's say that like in, in three months, neither of them is in the top 30, we don't need to do this all again. Right. We kind of get it. Like, well, we get it, guys. We're not that good right now. We don't have to have like every incremental, like nobody top 25. We can stop that. 
Right, exactly. We get and it. Once you drop out of top 20, I think that that's a pretty significant marker because we should have somebody in the top 20. Not having somebody in the top 10, okay, fine. But the states should have somebody in the top 20. I think that Isner is built to carry a country. I think that he does have the maturity to be able to do it. He just doesn't have the game to do it. His game is just such a roll of the dice. Yeah. He's been playing better lately, though. He has, absolutely. He plays well against Pospisil, I thought. Pospisil played amazing. He's he's returning well. John's definitely playing his best tennis now of the year. Did Ronich win today, by the way? Yes, he did. So that means five Canadians made it to the second round of Montreal. Five Canadian men made it into the second round of Montreal. The most of any nation. I bow down to you, my new Canadian overlords. On the day, and I'm just going to do this because I very rarely get to ever gloat about soccer shit, so I'm just going to do it now. On the day when the United States absolutely broke Canada's heart at the Olympics in women's soccer a year ago today with Alex Morgan's 123rd minute header, the Canadians put five, five dudes into the second round, which is the most ever at Rogers Cup or most since like in 40 years or something. And then on top of that, I think Fishman and Bouchard are also in. So that's seven Canadians in the second round. So Sherry Fishy Canada. breaking the top. Sherry, Sherry Fishy. Fishy. Sherry Fishy just doing what she do. Sherry Fishy being Sherry Fishy, you know. <laughs> Let's talk about her like she's a thing. Why That's, not? Why not? Sure. Also, also Pelawu is just, it's it's really entertaining. If you get a chance to watch Philip Pelawu, just enjoy it. I got to see him at Roehampton, like, front row. Like, essentially, like, in Roehampton, you're, like, standing on the court. Got to hear every single thing he was whispering to himself. It was incredible. <laughs> he was he was alternately unbelievably po- polite and unbelievably profane. <laughs> <laughs> And it was awesome. It was such a multiple personality match, and I was thoroughly won over. That is good stuff. No, I like Philip Pelowa. I mean, he's great. I mean, he just has to, like, grow, like, into yeah. his body and get stronger and, like, whatever. But, like, I've always been, like, kind of a weird fan of Pospisil, and I definitely like, like, Raonic as well. And so I think that it's great for Canadian tennis. Like, I'm totally I'm totally down with Canadian tennis being a thing. I have no problem with it. Even Peter Polanski took a set off Nishikori. And he yeah. lost. He, he could have, I understand he's probably not your favorite, but he would have made it six. Like, they almost had six. Yeah. Good Lord, Canada. Calm yourself. <laughs> too much too soon. Hockey? What hockey? <laughs> First you take our Jesse Levine, and then you take our spots in the main draws of these tournaments. Who is one of, who is one of the five? Pretty much. Jesse also, Levine. Bogomolov. If only we kept Bogomolov. Darn. Darn. But yeah, no, good on Canada. Go and, you know, they're homering up their own uh, tournament. Good on them. They should. <laughs> Our next question comes from Holly, who asks us, as this is the 10th anniversary of the OC, she asks us, who would play Seth, Summer, Marissa, and Ryan in a top 10 WTA ATP adaptation of the OC? And I'll say, Courtney, if you need to go outside top 10, that's totally cool with me. And I will also say that I never watched that show because I thought it was terrible. Why did you think it was terrible? The OC is, like, awesome. The OC was very much of, like, people like my age loved the OC. when we were. It was on when I was in high school. No. Not for me. Not, like, Why, though? Southern California kids, like, being, like, millionaires but also, like, troubled and sleeping with each other's moms and stuff. No. No. Not for me. But Seth. I do, I do, like, I do like the Imogen Heap song, though. Yeah. But Seth. Seth was, like, every, like, to the extent that you hated everybody on the OC, which I generally did. Like Seth and like Sandy Cohen were the two characters that you were just like, all right, the show's all right because I can like. I never, I Seth. never gave the show enough of a chance to even think. Well, that. then there you go. So I'm not saying I, I would have liked it because I wouldn't have. Uh, mm. Wouldn't have happened. Anyway, according to answer this question, this is for you. Um. Okay. So the questions prompt is requesting top ten, which I'm not really comfortable doing because I just don't actually see any top ten analogs to Seth, Summer, Marissa. 
and OC Ryan. So I'm going to go outside that and I'm actually going to go with the kids. So let's take like the young kids ish. 22 and under, and cast Seth, Summer, Merce, and Ryan. So, I know who one of them is going to be. So who's who's Ryan going to be? It's going to be Harrison. Of course. I, I can't, I mean, I can't not. I mean, it's, there comes a point when you're casting a show where somebody just looks exactly like the character that you need to cast. And regardless yeah. of their acting ability or anything else, you cast them anyway. Wasn't that his nickname on uh, 40 Deuce? Wasn't it was. he the o- o- OC? I think, I, I think we did call him, Her- uh, yeah, OC. Did we call him OC? No, we called him Atwood because it was Ryan Atwood. Okay. We call him Atwood. Like you say, we. Like, we. Like, we, it was, it was me, and then my minions okay. uh, okay. refer to him as Atwood. So we're going to put Ryan as as Ryan Harrison. Because, you know, he's kind of weirdly troubled and probably pulls off a leather jacket pretty well. Stares out of windows. Let's go for it. Okay. Seth, who's like the nebbishy, adorably Jewish, but like super into Death Cab for Cutie character. Let's go with Milo Shraunich. <laughs> Physically opposites. <laughs> Obviously, when I think of Milos Ranch, I think of the ad- adorably Jewish Death Cab <laughs> fan. Continue. Look. You're doing well so far. We're, we we got to just cast as we're given. And who who else would you put? If I was a nebishly I, Jewish Death Cab fan, who would you first put? First of all, man, I've never heard the word nebishly before. Is that a real word? Nebish is. I don't, I don't know that word. Yiddish. Okay. Okay. Who, who would I put? I, I only know what that guy looks like. I don't know anything about his character or anything. Hmm. Who would I put in there? Hmm. No, yeah, Ronich is fine. Ronich works for me. See, so much protests and then nothing. Nothing I'm to just, back it up. I have to, if I'm not giving you shit, I don't get paid, Courtney. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, so so we got Ryan and Seth. Now we go for the ladies. So we got Summer and Marissa. Um, So then with Marissa, just because she's like prototypically OC and cute and pretty and the guys seem to like her or at least notice her, I'm going to go with Donna Vekic. Fair. So Keeping it very young. Yeah, I'm trying to be, high school age. Exactly. I'm keeping it 22 and under. And then Summer, I will probably have to stick with Laura Robson. Simply because, like, she's, like, Summer is kind of, like, a cool character in the OC. And so far as, like, the first time you meet her, she seems kind of weirdly ditzy and immature and kind of superficial. But she actually, as you watch the OC, becomes, like, one of, like, your favorite characters. Like, she's really, really interesting and, and um, thoughtful and stuff like that. So I will put Laura there. There you go. That was our question. That was really hard, though. If anybody else has, like... Yeah, please, we'll take your suggestions we for We will, it. seriously, because I, I don't know. Like, I couldn't think of anybody in the top ten to do it with. But you liked that show? You really did enjoy it? Did you watch the whole thing? I didn't watch the whole thing, to be frank. I watched, like, the first, like, three seasons. That's a lot. That's yeah, a lot. and then I just, the show kind of tailed off and was stupid, and Marissa became a coke addict, and it was just dumb, and Volchek showed up, and death occurred, and I didn't really like the whole alcoholism thing. Anyways, it just got way weird, but I liked the first two seasons. They were great. There you go. And you always watched for the music because, genuinely speaking, like the OC tunes were legit tunes. They had like their soundtracks were like best selling albums. Oh, they were they were really good. They were like the best like kind of compilations. And it was still kind of during that time where you couldn't completely access music for free. Yeah. So like nowadays, like you would just go on and like look at what song was being played and download it illegally. But back then it was like, oh, okay, well I'm just gonna download like the OC. It was good. Good times. And I went to school in the OC, so there was a bit of reality. So that was your life, essentially. It was pretty much my life. So you should have cast yourself as Summer. I should have. I should have. But I figure, you know, Asian Summer doesn't work. But, yeah, I mean, it was kind of that weird, polishy Newport kind of scene, which was dumb. So lastly, Courtney, I know you made an allusion earlier in the show to the fact that you spent the last week sort of off the tennis grid in 
Portland and just sort of on an actual vacation. As you've done before, I think you've been up there for soccer before, been a little bit off the grid. But talk about the experience of leaving or trying to leave tennis behind for a series of, you know, even days as dialed into this world and this tour and the cycle as we are. Is it is it really possible? To it's do? not completely possible. I mean, like to say that I completely ignored it, which be, would be kind of overstating because obviously I would check Twitter mainly because I would want to tweet something and I would go through like my timeline and see little things that were happening. So I was aware of kind of what was going on. But there was some kind of freedom in not being bogged down by the nitty gritty details. So in other words, kind of mm-hmm. knowing, OK, so Rogers pulled out of, you know, Montreal. Or, oh, Sam won and beat Vika. Or, oh, Pekka made the final. Or, you know, things like that. Like, kind of the broader, high-level stuff I knew. But kind of not being bogged down with, like, well, what time did Haas and Del Potro take the court? And how long was that rain delay? Or, wait, what did Puchkova do? Like, all you know, all sorts of things. Like, I kind of yeah. was, even though I'd see it, I just was like, Ugh, whatever, I'm not dealing with that. So, you know, I took a vacation for about six days. It was pretty much what I needed. It had been a really long time since I'd had something like that. And I think that for those of us who follow tennis on kind of a near religious compulsive basis, like there is very much that concept of FOMO, F-O-M-O, fear of missing out. Like you feel like even if you're going off and doing something else, like you kind of have to like, oh, what if something's happening back in the tennis world? And so I really tried to shut that aspect of it off. So if I saw something on Twitter or Facebook or on the web, like, okay, but I never was like checking just to see what was going on, which was quite freeing. It's tough for us in sort of how our jobs are set up because we write and tweet in for online stuff, which is sort of internet's always on. You know, mm-hmm. you could theoretically always be researching something. You could always be working in our jobs. It's very much not. And you could also always, almost always not be working. Yep. You really set your own hours. You have an incredible amount of autonomy. But that also leads to a lot of, it can lead at its worst, it's sort of just sort of drifting in and out of, oh, should I write? Maybe I'll write something today. Maybe I won't. I don't know. And it's good and bad, but to actually shut it off and not check Twitter or scores or news or it, it would be, it would take a lot. It would take like some serious, you know, actively, physically isolating yourself from your phone or something. I feel like if I was going to do that, I'd be like, okay, I'm going to go out and wander around Portland today or something or wherever I was in the world, but, and actively like turn off my 3G or something. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the best things about me going to Portland, which is a city that I love. It's just a part of me. I adore it. There's so much in that city that I want to do or explore that I care about more than tennis. Like, you know, and I don't mean that as like a slight tennis. No. I think anybody who knows me knows like I genuinely like always want to know what's going on and it's just a compulsion. But in Portland, I just kind of was like, I don't want to check scores. I want to sit here and drink a beer at Amnesia Brewing Company, or I want to like have a cocktail at Clyde Common, or I want to go have a really nice dinner at Tasty and Sons or like whatever. And I don't you, want you to... little trip advisor there. I'm trip advisoring just to, you know, because somebody was asking like name yeah. three places. I'll, I figured I'd build it in. And then it helped also just to like, you know, one of the primary reasons I was out there for six days was because the Portland Thorns, which are a new National Women's Soccer League team, which are effectively my club because we don't have a club in California, had kind of a two game homestand so so it was kind of fun just to be there and and be like really invested in another sport that wasn't tennis and again it's just been a while since I've kind of felt that way so yeah so that was fun it's different I mean it's hard now that we're both I think it's a little different that we're not doing team sports for the most part but it's odd sometimes or it's just a it's a weird feeling for me at least when I've done it going to a sporting event again as a fan you know sort of switching off the reporter mode or the covering Mm -hmm. it mode or following details or looking for storylines 
et cetera, whatever aspect of it. Or feel like you don't have to live tweet things that you're at or that, you know, you don't have to wonder what you'd ask this person or make sure you know absolutely sure what happened on a given play or something. I mean, it's a different sort of brain mindset you have to actively put yourself back in. Like when I go to baseball games or hockey games or whatever else now that I'm not not actually working. Or sometimes, right. or sometimes even I try to do it at tennis tournaments. If there's a match that I can go watch and know that nobody cares about this, especially that's kind of why I like going to qualies a lot of times for tournaments is because it's very low stakes matches and I can just sort of sit back and enjoy it for the, uh, for the tennis. See, it's interesting that you say it that way because for me, it's not an issue of like turning off my brain. My brain <laughs> is off regardless of what I'm doing, but like, <laughs> like it's more just having the freedom to cheer and to be vested. And yeah, that's, that's nice. something that I just really, really miss. Like, you know, like, you know, back when I was just purely a tennis fan, I was an idiot at tennis tournaments, like cheering and chanting and fist pumping and getting all up into things and getting so vested in matches. And yeah. obviously at this point, like that's really not how I kind of have learned to enjoy tennis simply because my job doesn't allow me to do it. No. So I'm, I'm much more kind of detached and, and necessarily so. And that's not a bad thing. Like, I think it's definitely helped my ability to see the sport clearly, which is great, but going to the two thorns games and like, jumping up and down and getting involved in matches and like living and dying with every single like you know shot on goal or like whatever and just you know being able to like laugh about stupid crap that you see happening like yeah. it had just been a really long time since I've been able to do that and I don't really even do that at like football or baseball games which are the other the other two sports that I really love because those are a bit more passive to me I'm not as kind of emotionally invested as I think I am like either back in the day when I would watch like specifically women's tennis or now like watching women's soccer which I feel like women's soccer is now like my safety zone because I'm like I'm never going to be a women's soccer blogger I'm never going to write about it I'm never going to report about it like I'm totally okay with acting like a complete nutter nut job yeah. as I watch this or if I meet the players I got to meet Alex Morgan and Tobin Heath that was cool how was that it was great they were so nice like honestly like it was kind of one of those funny things where like you're watching so Portland lost their it, basically a must-win game on Sunday and it was a gutting loss like the players looked like they were about to cry like it was pretty bad and Alex Morgan who is effectively the face of the league whether people want it to be that way or not like basically signed autographs around an hour and a half after the the match just working her way up and down kind of a little autograph sign and kind of interacting with the kids and you could tell she was disappointed but like she was doing what she needed to do and what she had to do and what she understood was her responsibility to do mm-hmm. so it was nice to see that because again like it was, it's hard to watch other sports and not like think of like the the tennis analog yeah you know and think of like well would Roger ever do that like if he you know lost it's Dukovsky and there were like a thousand kids outside that wanted his autograph I'm pretty sure he'd just be like sorry I'm gonna go home and that would be fine like I would never criticize him for that but like kind of watching her and, and kind of her teammates go through the motions and understand that it's it's just different with women's soccer that that there are truly, they have to try harder yeah they have to try harder and they're truly role models to those kids like those kids who are like you know they know what it was like to like be in the presence of Mia Hamm like when she was you know when Alex was younger or even Abby Wambach or whatever so it was quite nice to see that one of the funniest like little quirks though that I've seemed to like picked up on within like this, this new league and I don't know if it's just because it's a new league but like basically it sounds like the media request which players they want to talk to after the match and then the team or the league decides which ones they'll allow to be available interesting I know that i know that for hockey usually what they'll do is the team will pick like four or five people but they'll almost always make it like people who are like the relevant people for that game like anybody who scores will be immediately available 
Yeah. And anybody who is like the captain will be available, and like for the caps, like Ovechkin will be available every time. Yeah, not yeah. And the, the case. goalie, and the goalie will usually be available. Yeah, not so. the case in the NWSL, and I find really? that to be really, really interesting because, especially in a city like Portland, where you know Alex Morgan is really kind of the face of the team, and she's the face of women's tennis effectively now and stuff. Like they very rarely actually make her available after matches to talk, which I think is really interesting, and I don't really know what that's about. That seems not smart. Unless she, is no, she bad I, with media? No, she's great with media. Like she's like really you know she's great with media and and very chatty and gives smart answers and very honest and stuff like that but they don't have her come in and they have these kind of randoms come in and there's a part of me that thinks that like part of it is like oh well we want to show that like it's a team sport exactly it's a team sport and like whatever and i get that like props and whatever but at the same time like no one gives a shit about your story if you don't have an alex morgan quote in there yeah so, like, what exactly are you guys trying to do? So, I don't know. I found that to be kind of interesting. And so I just had a bunch of conversations with my friend over the weekend of, like, what it must be like to cover it and if it would be fun or if it would be actually kind of, like, crappy because you wouldn't actually get to talk to, like, you don't get a pool type thing where you could just grab the players right off the field, it doesn't seem like. Or maybe the, the riders just don't. I don't know. Hmm. But it was interesting. Yeah, going to that, I mean, you mentioned that you don't think you'd ever cover soccer. Can you imagine, like, because I think you've, really as far as sports go you've only done tennis what what, can you imagine like doing soccer just being in that mode how different it would be to write about the thorns being a thorns beat writer i know i mean i i could be like i could imagine being like a thorns blogger okay (laughs) but i think that it's definitely one of those things where i would not really put myself out as being anything more than that and not to say that i put myself out as being more than that in tennis because in my head i still consider myself a blogger but i think that in my position at SI, it does require me to do some reporting. And so for me, some of the difficulty is balancing kind of those two things of like wanting to be a little bit more arm's length so that you can have an opinion and commentate. But at the mm-hmm. same time, like you are actually needing to report things. And then that's when you need to put your objective hat on and to be fair and, and, and not really infuse your pieces with, with the commentary. But yeah, I mean, I, I'd love to like write about other things, like maybe not necessarily sports, but I think that sure. one of the, like, you know, like I, TV or pop culture stuff and whatever. But I think that one of the things that I definitely took away from this past weekend was just there are those little facets of your life. And I've always said this generally, and my friends can back me up when I say this, is like, you don't actually always want to make your passion your job. And the idea that, like, it should be is like, like, that is like the epitome of like, happiness is really screwed up to me and it always has been in my head so like with respect to like women's soccer for example like I love it I love watching it like I get really invested like the players are great like whatever I would never want to write about it because if I did it would really take away from my enjoyment because there'd be certain things that you would not be allowed you couldn't enjoy it the same way that you have yeah over 30 years so yeah there we go yeah so with that we'll we'll do that hopefully you'll be able to enjoy our show in 30 years God, I, I, let's hope we're not still doing this in 30 years. Seriously, we... if we're doing this in 30 years, it's it's time for an intervention, you guys. Like, feel free, like, a Twittervention. God, that would be bad. No offense, Ben. I adore you. But... I feel like, welcome to, like, episode 3517. Like, just, just make it stop. <laughs> it's, like, it's like Star Trek, like, Starlog 24.17.482. <laughs> but hopefully, hopefully you do like the show, even if you're not, don't want us to go that long. And if you do... We appreciate it. If you could leave us a review on iTunes, that'd be awesome. Uh, you can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ncrpodcast. And you can follow us on Twitter at ncr underscore tennis. All those are swell things to do. We appreciate them. And that's about it for us. 
Have a good one, folks. Um, We're going to be in Cincy next time. We'll get to do a live show, Ben. It's going to be pretty exciting. See you. I'll be seeing you on Friday. And we can exactly. eat some Skyline chili and some Mason Applebee's. And we catch should up totally with... podcast at Mason's Applebee's. Not a bad idea, actually. On location? On location at, Maple, at Mason's Applebee's. And we just kind of like narrate the things that we're seeing. In front of a live studio audience. Yes. Pretty much. We'll do that. We'll tweet about that. Come out and join us at Mason Applebee's for a live show. That could be horrible. We'll just give it a shot. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> and if it doesn't work, we'll scrap it. Because exactly. really, who cares? <laughs> Thanks for joining us, folks. Have a good one. Adios. Later. Shadow is a time.